Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and today I'm talking to Joanna Braniff and Noel McLaughlin, the authors of How Belfast Got the Blues, A Cultural History of Popular Music in the 1960s. There's no shortage of books about the British invasion or the history of R&B and the blues in the United Kingdom, and Belfast might seem like something of a peripheral backwater to that story, only meriting a passing reference as Van Morrison's hometown. In this book, however, McLaughlin and Braniff center Belfast, the complex political situation of Northern Ireland just before the Troubles, and the blues as a politicized art form that played its part in the complicated dance among the Catholics, the Protestants, the generation just coming of age in the 1960s, and the Irish political leadership. They demolish some cherished myths about the blues in Belfast, bring some important figures back into the narrative, and find unexpected meaning in a film that even diehard Rolling Stones fans probably don't know about. Joanna and Noel, welcome to New Books and Music. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thank you for having us. We're really, really glad to be here. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Kirsten, and thank you for the lovely introduction. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I wanted to just to start off to talk about your collaboration. It's actually pretty unusual in musicology to have... um, a book that's co-authored like this. And I wonder, perhaps, Joanna, you could start off by um, telling us about how you started to collaborate as authors and why you chose this particular topic. Well, uh, Noel and I have been friends since uh, we attended university together, which was kind of when dinosaurs roamed the earth. It was, uh, I think it was, we graduated in 1991. And we've been been firm friends and collaborators on a, a number of projects over all those years. And we, it sort of started off just as one of those kind of general conversations about, yeah, maybe we, maybe we should write a book. Maybe maybe we should do this. And the book actually started as a different idea because I think, like a lot of people, we thought we knew the story about the blues in Belfast. Um, given the fact that that we're both from Northern Ireland, I'm from Belfast. Noel's from the North Coast, and we'd we'd kind of had a lot of the stories about the blues in Belfast handed down secondhand because my dad was a musician who played, he was a contemporary of Van Morrison and, you know, played the blues scene. So we'd always kind of heard these almost kind of mythical stories about what had happened. Um, and so we were really interested to, to try and investigate it a bit more and, and look at the story. And then we were we were so surprised and so shocked. It, it, it didn't take very long until when we started delving into it that we realised, goodness, there's so much more to this story. And and it seemed like every kind of stone that we 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 turned over, there was there was another amazing story that nobody really knew about. Um, and I think it's it's worked well because Noel comes from a an academic uh, background, whereas I've worked as a, a journalist in Northern Ireland for about fifteen years on the the daily paper, and then I went and worked uh, at the local parliament here, Stormont in Northern Ireland as a political advisor and a director of communications. So I was kind of poacher turned gamekeeper. And 
it, it gave us a really different perspective on the story. And then we started to see how music and how politics started to fold together to, to create a different narrative. And then that in itself began to shine a light on the more politicised aspects of, of, of how the troubles actually started in Northern Ireland. And we were, we were dazzled by the story that was there and amazed by what we found. Yeah, I think if I could add to that, Kirsten, um, I mean, um, Joanna very beautifully and persuasively talked me into the project. At first, I didn't think that there was enough mileage for a, a weighty tome uh, uh, about one city in one decade, particularly a city that you know is largely associated with them and their more famous lead singer Van Morrison and the legend of the Maritime Hotel, because I guess them's brief uh, brush with fame has been eclipsed by Morrison's you know, much more long-standing career. But it's a feature of, I suppose, rock biographies to want to return to the origin where it all began and uh, the context within which it started. And at first we had a more modest book in mind where we'd tell a more local on the ground story of what that blues scene was actually like. And we thought also that we'd be doing a an honour to um, musicians who are now, many of them are in their, 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 in their 70s, we thought, well, let's get some of this story on record before the people no longer want to tell it or they're not around to tell it. And there was that imperative there at the start. Um, but I thought I'd said most of what I had to kind of say about the Belfast beat and R&B scene in a previous book that came out in 2012. How wrong I was. Not only... <laughs> not only um, uh, was there enough material? We had to work hard to squeeze it into to two hundred and twenty thousand words. I mean, it's about three times the length almost of many academic monographs, and uh, we actually had to kind of edit and work hard to kind of decide what we were going to omit and what we were going to put in. But yeah, the the, the interesting facet was that the research then guided us in a in a wholly different direction. And while some of the book, I think, talks about the scene sociologically and looks at the significance of other artists, it's not one of those books where, you know, you want to dip into to find out, well, you know, here's the extent of all the bands that were playing on the scene. Uh, it's not that kind of local interest book. I'm, I'm sure you feel that from reading it. It's, it's designed in a way to try and explore how Belfast is connected to, to bigger musical managerial and political tram lines really uh, it's a, it's i always describe the book via the oxymoron it's it's parochially cosmopolitan um, <laughs> if that makes any sense um, it's yes it's looking at a local scene but it's using that as a lens to explore uh, belfast's interaction and interconnectedness to the united states to britain both popular musically and politically Maybe we could start by just sort of setting the scene for people who haven't had the chance to read the book yet. Can you tell me a little bit about um, the political um, realities in Belfast in the 1960s, as well as what the music scene looked like as sort of just a background? Maybe, Noel, you could start with that question. Well, um, 
mean, the 60s is, um, Joanne will be able to add better, um, I think, specific detail to this, but the 60s in Northern Ireland, um, prior to the explosion of the the R&B boom, because, I mean, the emergence of them and Van Morrison at the Maritime Hotel, it's not just uh, a credible uh, popular musical scene arriving in Belfast. It, it's, it's also taken to be when Ireland in general got the blues and joined the broader narrative that includes the British invasion. But politically, it's remembered, the 60s is remembered as a period when the Troubles is largely in abeyance. Uh, I mean, the key event here is the ending of the the IRA's border campaign, uh, Operation Harvest, which was taken to have taken to have been a failure in its own terms. It wasn't galvanising support uh, from uh, the nationalist community either side of the border, as it were. So the 60s is remembered largely as a kind of period of peace and something of a halcyon period um, in the history of Northern Ireland. It's the it's the the dayglow um, time before the dark tunnel of the troubles. That's the the kind of the the the, the stepping back, zoom out narrative, as it were. I mean that narrative we sub- we subject to uh, we subject that narrative to a certain amount of scepticism, um, but that sort of sets in a way. The, the kind of the broader parameters um, of of the of the decade, but a lot of um, shall we say the compost is being laid that might set the conditions for the onset of violence, and that creates a series of crossroads um, in the kind of the Robert Johnson sense of the word, uh, not musical but political. There's roots that could have been taken. That might have uh, might have led to a different future. Of course, that um, that's not what happened. But we're uh, especially interested, not so much in just detailing that political history, but how that political history is animated through through music um, and the role that music plays um, in that ferment, as it were. Yeah, and I suppose what I would add to that is as well, um, you know, having grown up in Belfast and worked as a journalist in Belfast, and I suppose it just kind of, it seeps into your bones when when you live here. But, you know, every narrative, every piece of history is contested and contentious in Northern Ireland. Um, There's a lot of kind of memory wars. There's There's always a kind of sense of trying to shift the blame from one side to another. And frankly, a lot of the kind of straightforward political history books, they, 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 they tend to kind of dial up one side of the narrative or the other. And, and they, they take Northern Ireland and what was happening in the politics out of context. They take it out of the hands of the, of the people and the quotidian reality of living in, in Northern Ireland and living in Belfast in the 60s. And even to this day, you know, when we were writing this book in, in um 2019 it was the the anniversary they were marking the anniversary of the kind of the official start of the the modern troubles in northern ireland which was in 1969 um and even the stuff that we were hearing that that was out in the media as people were kind of discussing this and talking about memory and talking about history 
it, it was all very kind of sanitized and the narrative had been accepted as, as how the story had been told. And I think we, we just realized actually that music and this the culture that surrounded it was was a way of telling the story differently because you know Northern Ireland's known as the, the most contrary region, and it was almost like as we look back now, fifty odd years later, it was just like oh well, the troubles just happened spontaneously. They were a continuation of what had been going on effectively, you know, for hundreds of years, and it just kicked off again. Was the kind of the narrative of it. But then we very quickly began to realise, now hold on a wee second, that this is about something else, that there's part of this history that's missing, that there's a part of this history which is neither orange nor green, it's blue, because it was music that was connecting the, the civil rights uh, in Northern Ireland to what was happening in America. Um, you know, it was that culture, and that, that, that part of the narrative has always kind of been left out because the analysis has always been based on... Um, there being conflict between Catholics and Protestants or unionists and nationalists. And and it was actually much more complex than that. And music gave us an amazing way, a wonderful lens to actually look directly into people's lives and to see how they were feeling, how, how they felt connected. And, and you know, in, a, in an era without kind of internet or a lot of people didn't even have television, music was, was an international medium and Northern Ireland was kind of dancing to a global tune as opposed to it just being about something that was happening, you know, a bit of local difficulty. It, it, it was being animated by by forces that were that were global um, that nobody had really taken on board before. Yeah, see, I think, I think Kirsten, that, um, you know, um, African-American rhythm and blues and its appropriation by the young British bands uh, it had a, a very liberating effect um, in Northern Ireland, and it joins uh, other African American forms like jazz that offered spaces outside of the parochialism and the conservatism of uh, Irish and Northern Irish culture. I mean, that story's been told uh, very eloquently in relation to Irish and Northern Irish film studies. Um, it hadn't really been told in relation to music in the same way. But then we also peered around the other side of the, the rock, as it were. Um, we were also interested in a more underexplored but more pressing question. I mean, given where Northern Ireland was at the time, given that it was sort of in a way filed away for the rest of the United Kingdom as the kind of mad, proverbial mad ant in the attic, could music play a role? in giving Northern Ireland a positive image to both the United, the rest of the United Kingdom and to the rest of the world. So in other words, were there, was there a sort of a sense in which music could be pressed into some of the issues the state wanted to promote? So that was a narrative that we early on began to develop. It started off as something of a hunch, but as often you find the more you start engaging in primary research and living in newspaper archives and public record offices and so on, you begin to then find that there's a, there's, that, oh goodness, this narrative has actually got legs. So we're looking at that other issue of, uh, I mean, uh, the United States was very important again in this regard because 
you know, the young senator running for the presidential race, John F. Kennedy, had the the foresight to make an alliance with Frank Sinatra. And Frank Sinatra adapted the lyrics of his song, High Hopes, to Kennedy's presidential campaign. And then we fast forward a few years to 1964 and across the Atlantic, the Beatles make an alliance with Harold Wilson, um, which you know, plays an insignificant role in the balance of a general election. What's le- I mean, these two things are quite well known. What's lesser well known is the, the way in which Northern Ireland's Prime Minister, um, Terence O'Neill, uh, set about as a fan of Kennedy, um, building popular music to sort of bolster particular political uh, concerns and, and to develop a particular image of Northern Ireland, what we call in the book the normalisation thesis. You know, music delivered for the Northern Ireland government at that point, who, who were in trouble, basically, they were politically in trouble. Um, you know, they, they were starting to kind of lose control of what was happening on the ground. And music delivered for them both show and business. It was something that could be projected out. It was something that could be used to drive revenue. It was something that could be used. It was a tool that could be used to win hearts and minds, particularly of of young people at the time. But then the very conservative unionist government that also at the time, you know, they they had a problem on their hands and about how they managed that. Um, And so, you know, this was a completely different way for us to, to, to get in and see how the business of music was working on the ground in Belfast at the time, because again, that's something that's really been ignored in the kind of star story. And then when you start dialing into the the economics of Northern Ireland in the 1960s, a different picture emerges. Um, and it was music, it was blues music that let us kind of find that and see that. I'd like to pick up on um, something that you said that sort of ran through your both of your answers was about the difference between what you thought going in and realizing how much of that was sort of historical mismaking and part of these memory wars, as you called it, Joanna. Um, and, um, you know, we, there are many of them that you interrogate so skillfully. But I wanted to just hone in on one, which is, I think, a myth that is probably true in, in many different places, which is this idea that Boom! All of a something, all of a sudden, something new happened, and there was no sort of it was sort of comes out of nowhere with no um, precursor. And you really painstakingly not only talk about um, the scene in Belfast and in Ireland, sometimes in all of Ireland, that really needed to be there and fed into the success of them and Van Morrison but also um, looked at some of the myths about that particular band and um, its uh, its premiere at the Maritime Hotel. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and kind of use that as an example of the ways that you interrogate um, so many of the myths in this book. Yeah, I mean, with, with the Van Morrison uh, and them um, story, I mean, it's certainly not to take away from the, the talent and and the success and, and the amazing music. We're both great. We're fans of them, and we're we're, we're fans of Van Morrison, of course. Um, but we we just knew that there was something about the story that didn't make sense when we sat down. I think it's probably coming from a journalistic background. You know, I I worked as an investigative journalist, and, and I know the value 
of a timeline because when so much time goes past, it becomes, a, you know, it becomes a fudge. It becomes a, a melange of, of, well, this happened, then that happened, then this happened. And then when we actually sat down, we spent one weekend where I think we almost drove each other mad and ourselves mad, where we actually sat down with the primary sources and figured out that the timeline just, it didn't fit, it didn't match um, the way the story had been told before. And and we kind of realised, you know, there was very savvy management around the band and they wanted to, to match the, the spontaneous kind of talent, um, the, the image that was going on at the time that, would you know, that would sing with the, the Rolling Stones and with the Beatles, a myth, a way of telling the story already existed at that point, and they kind of had to follow that narrative um, in order to give Northern Ireland its stake in this story too. And then as time has passed, nobody's ever really questioned it. Nobody kind of sat down and said, well, did that really happen like that? And again, having an insight where my dad was concerned and the hike how music was managed and performed on the ground. Um, you know, it, it was, I suppose we had a kind of much more realistic view of, of, of it. It was an insider's. We were, we were very lucky to have an insider's view of, of what was happening at the time. Um, and as we opened up, it was like kind of opening the clamshell on that. Then, then we saw these other connections that were being made to this that pushed the timeline back. And we realised the, the political expedience of having a successful exportable um, music product, for want of a better word, um, for Northern Ireland and for the the unionist government at that time. You know, it's 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 one of the aspects of the book I think we're we're perhaps most proud of, um, because not not that we're just trying to uh, knock down sacred cows. It's it, that's not really the imperative. It's not hey. You might you might have thought this, but it's really about that. It wasn't. It, it certainly wasn't driven by such a kind of crude impulse. Um, I mean, as Joanna uh, very eloquently, I think, points out, what what we were interested in was how these dynamics work, how they how they connect to broader things, and I think a very important um, tension uh, in this regard is the the tension between official memory. And by official memory, I mean the story is told in in um, Van, the, the many Van Morrison biographies, and two of them in particular are the the Holy Grail sources for for internet forums and Van Morrison sites and musical historical sites, and they're they're kind of repeated verbatim. It's incredible how many folk who run blog posts like to just repeat what biographers have said as if it's their own work. Um, so we were interested in this official story, as it were. And the other side of the official story, of course, is the heritage narrative, the way that um, Northern Ireland musically has to sort of sell its story via the myth of the maritime in the present, partly to attract tourism and to, to run music centres and, and different things like that, versus ver- what's called vernacular memory, um, the history of those on the ground, and it was very interesting to to compare those two things over a period of about five years to start to see how they conflicted quite a lot. Um, that bio- biographies would place particular emphasis on certain things. Uh, I mean, 
every single Van Morrison biography worth its salt places uh, a, a very forensic lens on the, the Belfast Telegraph campaign of April 1964. Uh, and it was three very novel and new adverts that were unique in the history of advertising bands in Ireland or Northern Ireland. They were taking out spaces for a small club of about 200 people that were the same size as those deployed for show bands um, who were had gate returns of thousands of people. Um, so we thought this is sort of interesting. But then the musicians on the ground, Joanna's father being one, they don't really remember the Belfast Telegraph ads. They remember the fly posting campaign that lasted longer. These vivid coloured, um, very simple flyers that just said, them are coming, that flooded the city somehow um, in the uh, early weeks of, of April 1964. And that began to then point towards other interesting connections because I think the most shocking one was uh, the fact that the Beatles had used the very, the very same campaign previously when they broke America uh, in the in, in the 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 very open of nineteen sixty four, because uh, America was emblazoned with posters and billboards and bumper stickers that just quite simply said the Beatles are coming. We thought, now is this coincidence? The Beatles are coming, them are coming. Now in today's world of where the the world has obviously shrunk through the internet, folk can keep track of campaigns across the globe quite easily in the way that everybody across the world was, you know, tuned into the, uh, the U.S. election. Um, back in 1964, of course, the world did not work that way. So we began to then think, well, are the local promoters who are credited with being legends in the story, are they au fait with the Beatles campaign? Are they au fait with the, the equally legendary Crawdaddy Club and the campaign to set that up? In, uh, in, in London forward slash Richmond. So these began to kind of beg very interesting questions. I think the phrase we use in the book is they go from, you know, questions that seemingly didn't beg any questions to inviting quite a lot of scepticism. And those became catalysts for pursuing certain things that might take us kind of two years to to gather the evidence for. I hope that helps, Kirsten. That's a long-winded answer to a good question. Oh, no, no, that was very interesting. Thank you. Um, one of the other things that your book does so well, um, not only sort of investigating these historical myths and, and the difference between sort of, as you said, the kind of heritage memory and the vernacular memories, but is also um, really in, uh shine a light on some figures that have not been investigated very much and have sort of uh, fallen out of the historical memory. And one is the Solomons, who you um, alluded to in your answer, was the manager for them and was obviously incredibly powerful in the in the Northern Ireland uh, uh, musical business. But another one is um, Ottilie Patterson, who's someone I'd never heard of before. It's just a fascinating figure, and I'd love for you to introduce her to the um, to the listeners. So perhaps, Noel, you can start and tell us more about her. Oh, um, I mean, that's, it's, it's, again, a wonderful question. I'm going to have to kind of 
compose myself to 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 to, to give a, a nice rounded answer on that because I mean I'm a, a lover of Otley Patterson's music uh, first and foremost, but let me put myself first in the position of being someone who hasn't written this book, but who has written a previous book about Northern Irish rock and pop. I mean, my co-author in that book is a figure who endeavoured years and years ago to to teach Joanna and I when we were at university, um, uh, called Martin McLoon. He's one of the leading uh, Irish film scholars internationally. And even he, when he was... um, uh, consulting with us in this book, said, I have never even heard of her. And he's a, a, a rabid blues fan, uh, a, a fan of Van Morrison, and also a very distinguished historian. Um, and that's a marker, I think, of quite how much Otley Patterson has been erased from history, whether willfully or or I don't know, or accidentally. Um, I mean, these are the things that force one into speculation. The one thing that's bona fide fact is that she's not part of the story as curated and told and one that's ossified into the the dominant story. But if we peer again around, I'll use the metaphor a second time, around the rock, the other side of the rock, the extraordinary thing about Otley Patterson is that She's not just Northern Ireland or Ireland's first blues singer. She's regarded as the first credible white European blues singer. Now, if that wasn't enough, and the fact that that sits uneasily alongside that she's been pretty much erased from history, she play, she's the vital connective tissue but between developments in the United States and African-American culture and their popularization in Europe. So she's there, not just as an onlooker, she's there right in the mix of the musical collaborations that began to lay the, 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 the seedbed for the culture to follow. And of course, that culture to follow is the culture we all know. That's the culture that, and the story's supposed to start with Alexis Corner. It's supposed to start with John Mayles' Blues Breakers. And then it becomes the story of the Rolling Stones, and and then the rest's history, as it were. The rest, any you know, even a casual observer sort of knows. The missing link in this, because it's it's odd in musical historiography, isn't it, that the period between Elvis and the Beatles is a sort of a bit of a bit of a black hole period, <laughs> in a general kind of way. Not, I mean, the assumption casually is that not a lot happened between the Beatles, or between Elvis Presley and, and the appearance of the Beatles. Um, yet an awful, awful lot did, because this is the period where Otley Patterson with Chris Barber bands touring in the United States, and Otley is the first white singer to uh, appear and win favour with African-American audiences. Then she's in turn appearing with Muddy Waters and Sister Rosetta Tharp on their respective tours of the United States. And then this is beginning to ignite the enthusiasm of the younger generation that's coming up. And of course, that generation becomes largely male. So Otley's like a European version of Bessie Smith and 
Billie Holiday and Ma Rainey. Um, you know, she's this female progenitor that then somehow has been annexed from the importance to the broader story. The very fact that she's Northern Irish um, is uh, is extraordinary because, in some ways, if um, if in the heritage discourse where cities have to compete with each other for their legacy, you know, the Beatles have got Liverpool and, you know, Manchester's got Joy Division, London's got a raft of artists and so forth. If, you, if you're having to compete in this vortex for international tourism and so forth, well, Belfast has actually not just got Van Morrison, who is a wonderful, amazing blues singer with a roster of incredible albums, but we've somebody there before Van Morrison that's played a vital role as a cultural intermediary in setting up what we now call rock music. I mean, she's a foundational figure. Um, and then that just sits so bizarrely alongside the fact that even sort of switched on young cats who are, or switched on older cats who are into the blues and into music history, She's, uh, even if folk know of her, she's regarded as kind of a peripheral figure. I'm sure Joanna, I mean, given... Yeah, I mean, you, uh, you, you described that, that very eloquently there, Nolan. I like the, the, the phrase that you use, the kind of connective tissue, because I think also what's running along parallel with Otley's story is, is, is also one of the central themes of the book, which is about transatlantic dialogues. Um, and I think, you know... She was creating a dialogue there, which was dangerous in Northern Ireland because she was making the direct connections with civil rights that was happening in America. You know, she she was breaking the color bar. They 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 had embraced kind of blues music in a, in a kind of living form. They were using it in a very kind of subtle political way, sometimes not so subtle political way, and that became a dangerous kind of avenue for the Northern Ireland government to have somebody from Northern Ireland at the at the forefront, at the very place where the the the, the struggles for, for civil rights was happening. And and you know the same thing was being mirrored in in her hometown, in her home city. Um, and so she she was she had the potential to kind of open a dialogue at the time that the unionist government really didn't want discussed. They did not want those parallels with what was happening in the states to be explicit um so you know and again there's there's a tradition unfortunately in, in northern ireland of, of women's voices being suppressed and i think otley despite her amazing talent despite her vision despite her commitment i think she has kind of fallen foul of that as well well i certainly couldn't help but think about um the women that she worked with who had similar things happen to them you know, these progenitors of the blues, like, and, and rock and roll in America, like Sister Rosetta Tharp and Big Mama Thornton, you know, the same thing happened to them as happened to Adelie Patterson, where, you know, here's this woman who's at the heart of the beginning of these genres, and she gets forgotten in, uh, in favor of slightly later men. Um, and so hopefully your book will do for her what people like Gail Wald and Maureen Mahan have done for um, Rosetta Tharp and uh, Big Mama Thornton, you know, get, putting them back in the narrative and really showing how they are sort of a foundational figure 
um, for these, um, you know, for these men who later become much more famous. No, I mean, where where she's a a progenitor to echo Joanna's point here is that, uh, I mean, unlike, unlike, uh, say, them, um, she took a very explicit stand on um, anti-racism. I mean, on on moving to London in the mid-1950s, she, um, by 1958, uh, was resident in Notting Hill, an area I lived in many years later, obviously for a decade. And she was very central to the the vortex of anti-racist legislation in that famous inner West London borough. And in the wake of the race riots of 1958, she she was a founder member and signatory of a of the an organisation which predates Rock Against Racism, which interestingly, of course, is much better known, called um, SCIF, which stands for the STARS Campaign for Interracial Friendship. And in that organisation, she joined Peter Sellers and, and Cleo Lane and uh, the Marxist historian um, Eric Hobsbawm and others to actively, in the media, push against uh, Oswald Mosley and figures such as that uh, who were whipping up anti-racist sentiments. And this is the context that makes her, shall we say, uh, at risk of understatement, an awkward poster girl for the Northern Ireland state. So in a way, you could press them's more general adoption of rhythm and blues into servicing a kind of a normal Northern Ireland that was objectively anything but normal against this woman who was taking a very explicit stand and putting her her career and her politics out there and, and that's a different thing. And then, of course, as we write in the book, she would move on to being the first person to explicitly develop hybrids between the blues and uh, Irish traditional musical forms. And she didn't see that as, in her own words, as just tacking on some Irish stuff onto the blues. She wanted to really work at a deep musical level about the way you could bring these two things together. So she was a musical intellectual as well as a political activist. I mean, I'm, I, I, if I could do a kind of back to the future or time machine scenario, uh, if I could go back and meet Ottilie Patterson, um, an interviewer for the book, I mean, it'd be one of Joanna and I's joint fantasies to be able to, 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 to actually hear in her own words what she had to say. But of course, history has has robbed us of that. But um, I'd like to think we're playing a modest role in bringing her to uh, to a broader audience. Um, um, I mean, that's one of the, the joys of, 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 of writing a book that's driven by a mixture of investigative journalism and, uh, and, you know, and critical theory or critical philosophy, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, I mean, it's, I have to praise Joanna, my co-author here, to the heavens, because we, 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 we somehow by osmosis find a way of drawing, you know, these kind of areas together um, to make them work. Because, I mean, in my domain, um, university life and academia, often areas are quarantined from one another. Um, as Julie Mitchell put it, puts it, we become kind of 
part of the society of the specialists. And we wanted to kind of break that down and see what these different perspectives could bring to the table. Um, Joanna, I have a question for you, maybe that you could answer or start answering. And that is the other, uh, one of the other things that you um, do in the book that, uh, as writers that I love so much is that you keep coming back to the same people and the same subjects to look at them again in a new context and to sort of layer your, um, just add one more layer and one more layer and one more layer on top of that of your um, contextualization and thinking about particular um, subjects, which I'm sure was a real writing challenge, but as a reader was just incredibly fulfilling and enriching. And and one subject that you go back to over and over again is this movie um, from 1966 uh, that the Rolling Stones made. It was their very first movie. Um, it's called Charlie is My Darling, and um, it was suppressed um, and really, again, like Audley Patterson, just has disappeared from the historical narrative. But you both found such rich um, uh, ways of investigating that movie and, and sort of contextualizing it in so many different ways. Joanna, could you start out just by, you know, at least trying to uh, uh, somewhat um, to... Uh, Tell us more about that movie and the ways that you found it such an amazing site for analysis. Thank you very much for, for your, your kind comments on that. Uh, Noel and I are both fans of uh, Detective Columbo, so it is a case of, you know, just one more thing before we go. Um, yeah, I mean, Charlie Charlie is my darling. It features so heavily in the book because it was such a, such a rich source. And, and, you know, it's one of those things that you kind of, you think, did this really happen? That the first film that the Rolling Stones made, they made it in Belfast and Dublin. And we, we we've said the kind of you know hardcore Stones fans about this, and that the, they've been shocked. They've never heard of it. And again, it proved our kind of theory that you know politics in Northern Ireland, it's a swamp. The things that are just inconvenient can disappear into. <clears throat> I mean, the film itself is, is quite extraordinary. Uh, that. And one of the important things I think we, you know, it's worth mentioning about this was the director, who was Peter Whitehead, um, and just a fascinating character. And again, you know, we find, first of all, we find the film and we're, we're kind of going, what? That was made here? Then we were so amazed at the film and then we started to kind of look at the director and, and we saw his background, we saw his uh, political angles. And we realised that a director like that was not going to come to Ireland, north or south, and not use the opportunity to make a political point. And then that was the moment that the, the penny drops where we suddenly thought, okay, so he's making a political point here, and this film has disappeared. And there's been a million excuses, different strange excuses, of why the film did disappear, um, you know, from it being... Um, Oh, it was it was signed off as just being a screen test for for the band. That's not credible, given the the director who made it. He he was not employed to make a screen test. Then it was apparently caught up in uh, copyright issues. Then it was caught up in kind of ownership issues, permission. And then when we started to pull pull this, the string on the story, we realized the film had been made. It had been stolen. It had been returned. It had been stolen again. It was a war, it was given a major award, and then it just disappeared. 
And then that took us down a kind of a, a corridor of looking at what uh, what Peter Whitehead was about. And he emerged as, as again, a really fascinating character. And this film is his lens on what was happening in, in, in Ireland at the time. Um, and, you know, he's not just trying to make, he's not the type of director that, that would have just made some kind of ham-fisted political point. You need to kind of understand his work and his methodology and his way of thinking to see the messages that he has actually encoded in the film in order, as he hoped, to get it past the censors. Um, you know, the, when we sat down to watch the film for the first time, I think, Noel, you'd agree with this, we, we both nearly fell off the chair in the first 10 seconds of the film when we saw that he had audaciously started the movie with a map of Ireland that didn't have the border marked on it. Now, I mean... Even in today's context, that that's really that's a that's a symbol of, of of intent. You know, that's really politicized even from the outset. And then when we went back, because the, the film then was it disappeared, and then it was it wasn't re released then until two thousand and twelve. And you know, we were very excited to kind of get copies of the film. And then we saw how the film had be, been edited, and Whitehead's structure had been removed and we we kind of we we likened it we say it's like you know removing the the fuse from the bomb it had been re-edited in such a way that the message that had originally been in the original film it wasn't as explicit anymore you know for him to take the kind of narrative to go from Ireland without a border at the start of the film and to finish the film with the stones reading life magazine reporting the 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 uprising was in Watts, you know, even the arc of that tells a story of what Whitehead was trying to illuminate about what was going on in Northern Ireland at the time. And again, the context of this is really important because in the UK, there was what was known as the paper wall. There was an informal kind of ban on reporting anything that was happening in Northern Ireland. So for him, this was the only way that he could get the idea of the, the injustices and the problems that were boiling on the streets in Northern Ireland across to a kind of wider audience. Um, because literally the, the newspapers in, 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 in England and Britain weren't reporting what was happening in Northern Ireland. And Peter Whitehead's kind of modus operandi, he would, he would have clocked that, he would have seen that and realised that he was going to have, he had been given a great opportunity. One of the biggest bands in the world at that time, one of the most controversial bands in the world at that time, and he had them in Ireland, and he used that as an opportunity to make a point. Then the film disappears, and then when it reemerges as part of the kind of glossy uh, box set to mark the fiftieth anniversary of, of the Rolling Stones. It's a completely different film. The story has changed, and that in itself dredges up some very interesting questions when it comes to the censorship, the reportage, to what was happening at the time, and even what was happen- what's happening now in, in a contemporary context. Um, and you know, this the Peter Whitehead, it, you know, he's famed and fated as being the father of the modern pop video. He effectively invented the genre. 
Um, and it was such a significant landmark film. They had been made in Ireland that nobody had ever heard of. As a journalist, you know, that's when my ears prick up because it's it's, it's very often when things disappear, they become more interesting. It, it, they couldn't, the state couldn't formally ban the film because that would have only attracted more attention and more interest in it. So it had to kind of disappear in a much more subtle way. Um, so, yeah, again, that was another, just in another unknown but amazing wormhole for us to, to go into the story. And then when we mapped the production of the film against the politics of what was unfolding on the streets of Northern Ireland at the time. So put it this way, when, when Peter Whitehead came and filmed in Ireland, there was tension. By the time he took the film away and edited it, which took about like about nine months, the, 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 the situation on the streets of Belfast at that point had really began to deteriorate. So in terms of violence and um, you know co- community and political strife, so the, the, even the atmosphere and the situation that he made the film in had changed radically by the time the film was to be released. And, you know, Northern Ireland at that stage was a complete powder keg. It was, it was ready to, to go. And again, people tend to think, well, you know, the troubles started in 1969. The, the, the roots of that go way back, much further back than that. So the, the film kind of gave us, a, again, a timeline for us to go and look at what was happening on the ground in Northern Ireland. And we did that through, you know, primary research of, of newspapers, which are the first draft of history. And when we began to map the production of Charlie against the deteriorating political situation in Northern Ireland, it suddenly threw up lots of different possibilities about why the film had disappeared and ultimately, as well, why the Rolling Stones had become public enemy number one. Yes, it, it's it's quite fascinating because uh, you can kind of trace a hidden history with this, Kirsten, because it's often overlooked that the Beatles in their debut feature film, uh, A Hard Day's Night, um, were, you know, encoded a, a not-too-subtle subtext about Ireland via the character of Wilfred Bramble playing... Paul McCartney's Irish Republican grandfather, and the fact that the Beatles, as the biggest band in the world, objectively included uh, um, an Irish character making very pro-Republican statements, albeit with a bit of surrealism, um, in their debut feature was sort of overlooked. And given that the Beatles and the Stones in reality weren't rivals, they were actually very good friends, it's, it's sort of not unsurprising that that the Stones would become interested in in um, Irish politics post-Empire in a way that um, well, mainly Paul McCartney and latterly John Lennon um, would in that particular decade. So I became interested in this particular story because, I mean, Peter Whitehead's a, a cult figure in British film studies, and he's regarded as one of the, 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 the greatest directors of of the 1960s, but he's also a highly politicised director. Uh, I mean, I'll give you a little kind of story out of school here, Kirsten, because um, uh, I'd suggested to BBC Radio 4's obituary programme, The Last Word, that they should do a programme on Peter Whitehead after Peter Whitehead passed away. And um, 
they unsurprisingly didn't they unsurprisingly didn't do it because Peter Whitehead's a proverbial hot potato. Uh, in in the sixties, he made some of the most controversial but landmark films for the counterculture in Britain, Europe, and the US. I mean, he made the first film of a countercultural happening uh, called Holy Communion, and that focuses on Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the celebrated beat poets at the Royal Albert Hall in London. And this chimes at the same time with Allen Ginsberg appearing with Bob Dylan in the opening titles to that, that celebrated film and the father of the rockumentary, Don't Look Back, directed by Don Pennybaker. So we're seeing the energy that would map the cinematic 60s via popular music from Don't Look Back right through to uh, to the celebrated film by Mike Wadley of the Woodstock Festival. Um, Whitehead is in the, the midst of this radical milieu. Um, he's the first person in Britain filming a countercultural happening. Ginsburg eloquently ranting about American imperialism uh, very drunkenly on the stage, but still uh, impossibly charismatic and all of that. And, and then Whitehead would become seen as hugely political at the end of the decade with his film set in the States, um, The Fall. And then somehow I was interested in the fact that film scholarship that was sensitive to the work of Peter Whitehead, somehow regarded Charlie is my darling as a kind of anomaly. It was just a, a Stones vehicle that didn't get a general release because it made the Stones look stupid. And Joanne and I just didn't buy that. And I think at one level we just brought some local knowledge to, to the film. I've never read any scholarship anywhere that sees Ireland as significant in this missing in action for half a century debut Stones film um, that engages with its Irish location. It's just seen as a, as Joanna put it very eloquently, a, a missing in action Stones film that, that, you know, didn't make the grade as a, as a star vehicle. The film, I think, objectively is about much more than that. And it's wholly consistent with all of Whitehead's other films, which are regarded as highly political films, highly adversarial films, films that have troubled the censor wherever they've been. Um, so it's it's of little wonder, I think, that Charlie is My Darling had to, inverted commas, quietly disappear. And I think we quote Mick uh, I think we I think we quote, if I'm right, Joanna Keith Richards at the start of the chapter. You know, you can't really ban things because when you start to ban things, folk tend to take the, take those things that are banned to heart. And I, 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 if Charlie had been banned, I think it would have given it a certain notoriety. But um, it, it, Charlie, I think, in, has the distinction of being I, I, the first, I think, highly politicized um, film by a rock group that engages with things that we might call politically specific because it engages with Northern Ireland's complex relationship to empire. And then it seeks to sell that to uh, a broader audience across the world, educated college students in the U S 
the same in the UK, who are becoming distrustful of the old guard and the maintenance of existing social hierarchies. Um, and, and I think Charlie greatly upset um, not only the government of Northern Ireland, but I think it was a cause for concern for, for both government in the United Kingdom and in the US in the things that it animates. And that's quite an achievement for a film that, if you look at the existing edits that are out there, because the, the, the actual original film has never been, re- has never been released. Um, but the original film's an hour-long film you know, includes content that um, must be even more adversarial. So I think we're dealing with something incredibly worrisome for governments, uh, and that's wholly consistent with Peter Whitehead's modus operandi as a director. It's not an anomaly at all. Yeah, because I think, you know, it's 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 worth mentioning. We, we found that we were able to access the private correspondence between, well, at least one half of the private correspondence between Peter Whitehead and the Stones manager at the time, Andrew the Golden. And, um, you know, Whitehead says in the correspondence, people will see in this film what they want to see. So he was wily enough to know that he had, well, he tried to keep it on the kind of point that it was a film about the Rolling Stones. But when you start, when you know the director, and you start reading the, the encoded messages that he's that he's put into the film to, to actually get it out there, you realise what he's trying to draw attention to, and it's about inequality, it's about economic failure, it's about um, the potential for society to collapse and the violence, and he's making all these points in a Northern Ireland that's trying to sell itself or at least kind of keep its feet using um, economic policies, economic leverage. It's it's back to that normalisation theory that that we've spoke about. So the commentary that he had encoded and embedded in the film struck at the heart of the Northern Ireland establishment because it was critical. It was basically saying, you're failing and this is going to end in violence. And that is not the message that... uh, a government that that wasn't kind of particularly stable at the time, that was having problems with its relationship with the British government, that was having problems with its relationship with the American government. That is not the message that they wanted, particularly young people, to decode from that film. And so, you know, it seems kind of natural that it it ended up, as Noel says, quietly disappearing. Well, we, we we had to Kirsten engage with the idea of. Well, I mean, I mean, it's it's tantamount to stereotype to say that the Stones are the are, you know, in the nineteen sixties are regarded still as the most dangerous band in rock and roll. But one needs to step back and ask why were they such a concern for the state? Was it rock and roll behaviour? Was it the, the cliche of televisions out of windows and Groupies and and general kind of bad boy behaviour. Um, I I never ever really bought it, but I didn't have a context for thinking as to why that might be the case. And uh, I'm glad now I can go to my grave more easily. Um, hope, hopefully it's later rather than sooner. <laughs> at least at least knowing why more convincingly the Stones became public enemy number one. 
because they stirred up uh, um, uh, a critique of racial prejudice. Um, they stirred up a critique of the old guard and its desire to hold on to particular kinds of politics. I mean, the, the Stones and Michael Moore um, make great cause together because ultimately they share, despite the different means of doing it, the same political goal, which is exposing particular kinds of failures of the state in terms of economics, politics, and and the vexed issue of social inequality. Um, because, you know, we know that it's in the spotlight right now, of course, and with, with Trumpism, where, of course, Donald Trump is quite prepared to... to mess around with the democratic process, questioning an election for his own particular kind of aims. And if you take that out further, you know, states like to ultimately protect themselves and ensure their own longevity. What they don't want is people poking around in that and saying, well, what you're doing here is wrong. What you're doing here is is failing the majority of citizens that you claim to represent, whether it's via healthcare or whether it's via you know, regis- legislation uh, around race. Um, but I think the Stones were taking a very particular kind of political hand grenade via Peter Whitehead's film to the Northern Ireland situation, but also exposing the situation in the United Kingdom, which was turning a blind eye to Northern Ireland, but then also pointing to the issue of racial segregation in the United States. From a countercultural perspective, those set to benefit win. Everybody wins. From the state, from the perspective of the old guard, everybody loses. Um, yes, I think you. Sorry. No, no. I, I think I'm, I'm. I'm sorry for talking too long, Kirsten. Oh no, no. I was just. I think you make a very compelling argument in the book for needing to. If you don't understand that movie and sort of the history of what happened to that movie, then you it, it you leave out a big piece of. Um, the politicization of the Rolling Stones and also, you know, why they were targeted um, in a way that um, uh, was so, um, well, it was really quite vicious, right? And so they were, and I think uh, you you definitely make a, a great argument for that. And just all the ways you found of reading that movie was quite a, quite a tour de force of analysis for sure. Um, I would love to talk about this book forever and ever. But um, <laughs> I think we should probably uh, wrap it up. Um, but I do, before we, I, I do hope that um, our listeners will read more of this book. It, there's so much that we didn't get a chance to, to touch on. But um, hopefully we've gotten a few of the major kind of bombshells in the book and that people will, will read for more. Um, but before we go, I would like to ask, you know, you've, you've made such success of this book. Do you have more projects that you're, hoping to um, collaborate on together with in the future? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the book for us, we, we, there's so much in it that we, we, we really want to kind of keep that alive because there's a lot in the book that speaks to the present. You know, you know they say history kind of repeats itself and there's a lot within the book that, that, that does speak to the present. So we have a number of projects ongoing at the moment. We're negotiating to have a, a documentary made um, about Otley Patterson um, and you know, going into that in, in a bit more detail, we have a couple of events lined up for for next year. Um, music, politics, symposiums in Belfast, where you know we 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 hope to 
illuminate some of these and, and stimulate some discussion on the ground. And then ultimately, we are planning um, a book about another another Northern Ireland uh, artist who, again, for various political and social reasons, has, has suffered the same fate as perhaps Otley Patterson. Um, so, yes, and yeah, you're right. We probably should be taking a year off to recover, but uh, we're just so excited by the stuff that we we find in the book. Not necessarily excited about our own kind of writing, but we're so excited about the details that we we've uncovered and the amazing the, the story that of of Belfast and the Blues. And we, you know, we wanted to use that title because it it, it has resonance in both ways. We talk about how Belfast got the blues in terms of blues music. But we also talk about it in terms of what was happening socially. So we we want to use we've we've created these tools, and we certainly don't want those stories to just be preserved in aspect. So we want to use this to, to to stimulate debate in Northern Ireland in a contemporary setting, and and hopefully get people to kind of challenge their own view of what happened in the city and Belfast and see how that led down the tracks of, of where we ended up today. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can echo that, Kirsten, by way of conclusion. I think, you know, you you appreciate the sense of jeopardy that artists have taken at particular junctures, whether it's Otley Patterson, whether it's the director Peter Whitehead, whether it's the Rolling Stones, um, I mean, you, you, you're watching a moment where um, folk are using music to talk about something other than themselves. Um, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I was a Rolling Stones fan already. Um, Lord knows how many times I've heard Gimme Shelter, but still sort of sounds fresh to me. Um, but I have a greater appreciation for them now as a kind of uh, a mixture of a musical and a political entity. You know, taking a stand against racism in the 1960s in the American media, um, when Shindig, um, you know, featured very few African American artists, and the Stones famously refused to go on unless Harlan Wolf was in the bill, and then it was the first time Harlan Wolf ever appeared in American national television to you know coast to coast, as it were. Um, so in that spirit, we, we we keep that flame alive. I think we're we're kind of old fashioned lefties in the the mode of Michael Moore and of the Rolling Stones back then, um, because in a way, you get attracted to a project on the basis of it having a, a, a kind of political purpose, I guess overall. So you look for those marginalised from history, not because you're seeking them out because you want to write a book about them for that reason, but it becomes interesting when talent and identity combine and they're then erased from history. And then that, of course, begs the obvious question as to why. And then you want to kind of engage with the debates that that raises. Um, And I think, you know, hopefully I'm speaking correctly for Joanna here. there's no point in writing for the sake of writing. There's too much writing in the world already anyway. You know, I mean, since particularly since the age of social media. So you have to be sort of galvanized into, there has to be a point to, to, to wanting to write, to wanting to, um, you know, 
to be bothered to sort of sit there and devote your 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 time to this. So yeah, the next project I think book wise is on uh, a, a figure very similar to Ottilie Patterson, but in a more in relation to LGBTQ plus politics. So it's sort of northern. It's Ireland and Northern Ireland's first out gay musician, uh, the first to identify themselves as such, and how they in turn have been erased from history. So it'll be a different, slightly different kind of book, but it's got a continuity with some of the aspects of the missing Rolling Stones film, the absence of Otley Patterson that we've talked about in this session. But thank you very, very much, Kirsten, for the time. To yeah, thank you. It was, it was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. And this is New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and I've been speaking to Joanna Braniff and Noah McLaughlin, the authors of How Belfast Got the Blues, A Cultural History of Popular Music in the 1960s.